The next section is chapter 4, verse 44, through chapter 26, verse 19. This is the biggest section in the entire book. And this is basically Moses' second speech. In his second speech, he's now going to lay out all the stipulations of the law. So now he's told them what their God has done for them, the uniqueness of God's character, and the promise of life or death based on their obedience. Now he's ready to stipulate what is it that obedience looks like. What does obedience look like? Now, the first section of this second section, so letter A of Roman numeral 2, is he's going to kind of continue on with what does obedience look like in a kind of package. And then he's going to specifically go through what they're supposed to do. So in these first chapters, chapters 4 through 11, he's going to lay out the heart of the law. And then in chapters 11 through 26, he's going to go through the Ten Commandments again. He's going to go through all the laws. So we'll go through 11 through 26 pretty quickly because I've already, like, in great depth and detail gone through those in chapters, or in Exodus and Leviticus and Numbers. But we're going to spend quite a bit of time in chapters 4 through 11 because this is kind of what's unique to Deuteronomy. This is the heart of Deuteronomy. What God is going to try to communicate here is that he really does not want obedience to the law to be a result of legalism. The main point of chapters 4, the end of 4, basically 5 through 11, is that obedience to the law is not because you have to be obedient. Obedience to the law is not because you're scared of being punished. Obedience to the law is not just because everybody else is doing it and you have no other choice. But obedience to the law is because God first loved you and you can't help to love him back. And that's really the kind of idea here. And so this is less, Moses is trying to communicate that this really isn't about the legal and relational nature of the Ten Commandments. Or sorry, this is not about legalize, like the fact that you're legally married and you legally are allowed to be together, but this is more like a marriage contract where you want to, where you want to be married to this person. And it should be based on love. The setting starts in chapter 4, verse 44. This is the law that Moses set before the Israelites. These are the stipulations, the statutes, and the ordinances that Moses spoke to the Israelites he had brought after he had brought them out of Egypt, in the Transjordan in the valley opposite of Beth Peor, in the land of the king Sihon of the Amorites, who lived in Heshbon. It is he whom Moses the Israelites attacked after they came out of Egypt. They possessed his land and that of King Og of Bashan, both of whom are, were Amorites, kings, and the Transjordan to the east. Their territory extended from Aror at the edge of the Arnon Valley as far as Mount Sion, and that is Hermon, including all of Arabah and of the Transjordan the east to the Sea of Arabah beneath the watershed of Pishgah. This second speech begins much like Deuteronomy chapter 1, verses 4 through 5 begins. 
Each speech begins with this, oh, by the way, remember that Israel is here and the reason they're able to be here is because God defeated their enemies that used to live here and now they occupy all this territory from here to here because of the greatness of Yahweh and that's why they're now here and that's why Moses is able to give them a speech here. And so all that, what is the whole point? It's emphasizing that the only reason they have it here is because God has been faithful to them. The essence of the law begins now. Verse 1 of chapter 5. Then Moses called all the people of Israel together and said to them, Listen, Israel, to the statutes and ordinances I am about to deliver to you today. Learn them and be careful to keep them. So the first thing he says is, I'm going to renew this covenant with you. I'm going to renew this covenant with you and give you all these laws. Many of them you have already heard, but now you're going to hear them with the heart of God. This is the heart of God. Most scholars all agree that this is where you get the law again, but God gives his heart a whole lot more when he gives this law than he did in Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers. And so he says is listen. Now the word listen here is the Hebrew word shema. And shema, is we'll hear that again when we get to Deuteronomy chapter 6. And the Hebrew word shema means hear or listen. But it doesn't mean just listen in a physical activity kind of stuff. It means actively respond and do what you've been told. So when Moses says, listen, Israel, he doesn't mean just, are you hearing me? He says, listen and do. Respond accordingly. Your heart should respond in a loving kind of a sense after you listen to the commands of God, and your actions should respond actively in obedience to what you've heard. And that's what God means when he says, Hear, O Israel, you should do these commandments. Verse 2, Yahweh our God made a covenant with us at Horeb. He did not make this covenant with our ancestors, but with us, we who are here today, all of us living now. Now, what he means here is, yeah, technically he did make the covenant with the ancestors, but remember, every single generation was required to renew the covenant. And so what he's saying is that some of you do remember being at Mount Horeb because you were little children or young adults at that time. So technically, in some way, you were there when he made that covenant. But there's another sense where we're renewing this covenant today, and therefore, He's also making it with you and not just your ancestors. So Yahweh spoke face to face with you at mountain from the middle of the fire, and I was standing between Yahweh and you at the time to reveal to you the message of Yahweh because you were afraid of the fire and would not go up to the mountain, he said. He makes it clear that the reason that you got the commandments the way that you did was because, remember, you were too afraid to have a really good relationship with him. You were too afraid to draw close to him. I am Yahweh your God, verse 6. He who brought you from the land of Egypt, from the place of slavery, you must not have any other gods besides me. So he's going to go through the Ten Commandments again. And the first thing he starts off is exactly like Exodus chapter 20 starts off with is, I am your God who delivered you. Remember, I talked about back in Exodus, there's only two reasons why God ever gives you for why you should obey him. One, he is God, the only true God. 
who created the entire universe and is worthy of your obedience. And two, he's the only God who ever saved you and ever delivered you. Those are the only two reasons. So he starts off by saying, I am God who is worthy. And two, I saved you. Which should take you back into chapter four where God says, is there any other God that is anything like me and has done anything for you like I have? Well, here's the reason why you obey me. Because there is no other God that is like me and has done for you what I have done. There is no other God that is completely sovereign over all things and was even willing to send his own son to die on the cross for you. Obey me because you love me. Now, notice also that the first thing that God says is, which came first, the law or deliverance from Egypt? Deliverance from Egypt. So notice that their salvation comes first and then the demand for obedience. In the same way that our salvation through Christ on the cross comes first, and then the demand for obedience. And this is important. God knows that they're not capable of being obeying, and he knows that their obedience cannot get them salvation. He saves them, and then he calls them to obedience. He loves them first, and then calls them to respond to love. And this is even with the point that John's going to make. We know love by... The fact that he first loved us. See, all these Second Testament writers are going right back to the First Testament. All these principles are already there. So, I am God who is worthy, and I first loved you, so love me back. Love me back. Now, we're not going to go through these Ten Commandments in great detail, because I already did that in the book of Exodus, verse 20. So go back to that commentary and the audio. I'm going to look at these laws, commandments, more in light of going into the land. When we talked about the Ten Commandments back in Exodus 20, I spent a long time unpacking just every possible facet that I could think of and how it applies to our lives. But because the context of Deuteronomy is more about their entrance into the land, we're going to look at these Ten Commandments now more in light of them entering the land and them living these Ten Commandments out in the land. And then also in the secondary context of what this means for their relationship with their children. Because God keeps emphasizing this, teach your children, teach your children, teach your children. So what do the Ten Commandments look like in light of teaching your children? And so that's the main focus. If you want a really exhaustive, as exhaustive as I can possibly do, commentary on the Ten Commandments, go back to Exodus 20. So I'm going to take it just a more limited um, perspective here in Deuteronomy. So the first commandment is... You must not have any other gods besides me. This command implies that there are other gods. And we talked about this a few weeks ago. In one sense, God denies that there's other gods, meaning that there's other gods that are legitimate of your worship because they're powerful and they're loving enough for that. But in another sense, he does acknowledge the existence of other gods because there are angelic beings out there that, I mean, we can worship anything. And so in that sense, the gods are real because there really is truly angels and demons out there that vie for our attention. There really is things like money, power, and sex that vie for our attention, and they do have power. Not ultimate power, no relational power, but they do have something that we can be attracted to and go after. And so he's not denying the existence of other gods. What he's denying is the priority, making them priority. That everything should be prioritized. Do your children truly exist? 
Yes. Are they worthy of your worship? No. Are there parents who do worship their children? In a metaphorical sense, yes. He's not denying the existence or the reality of things out there that can take your attention away from Yahweh. He's denying the fact of the, what, what um, Augustine called disordered love. Is it appropriate to love your children? But is it appropriate to love your children above Yahweh? No. And this is what Yahweh is speaking to, disordered. Is it appropriate to love creation? Yes. Is it appropriate to love the animal kingdom? Yes. Is it appropriate to love or have an appreciation for art and the things of God's creation? Yes. But do you order those things above the Creator? No. That's the main emphasis of this command. Because is He not telling them to take care of creation when they go into the land? Is He not telling them that the land is a great thing that they should have? Did He not create all of the animal and plant world and the food for them? that they're supposed to care for it, appreciate and take care of it? Are they not called to be a blessing to the world and love those people? Yes. But what he's saying is, you're not allowed to put any of that before me. I'm not telling you to love me only. I'm not denying the existence of everything else other than me. I'm saying you're not allowed to prioritize anything before me. That's the heart of the commandment. That's the heart of the commandment. You're not allowed to put anything above me in your worship. Now that implies then, not that you can worship Yahweh and then just worship everything else a little bit less, because Yahweh also demands exclusive worship. And if you're truly worshiping Him, then you're also going to obey Him, and His obedience demands exclusive worship. Because we don't take things out of context. We don't read one sentence and build a whole theology up. Why is this very important here now? In the wilderness, they were isolated. There's really not much out in the wilderness. There's a blazing sun, but they were cursing that every single day. There's not a lot of crops in the wilderness. God was providing for all their needs. It was all kind of coming out of the middle of nowhere almost. And they didn't encounter other nations very often. And the very few times they encountered them, they were commanded to attack them. Now they're going into the land of Canaan. Canaan is a land flowing with milk and honey. It is going to be filled with crops. It is filled with people that they're not going to eliminate in one generation. Not because they're disobedient, but because God's going to tell us that they're not capable of taking one. He doesn't want them to take it in one generation. We'll talk about that later. And so the reality is they're going to go into a land now where there's going to be all these things now, crops and waterfalls and animals and a land of abundance. And there's going to be people living there that do worship all these things. And they're going to be very tempted to do what the people around them do. And that is worship these gods to get crops, to get healthy children. And we know the power of the culture and its ability to lure, lure us in and to seduce us. And even when we try very hard, it has a very powerful grip on us. And so God knows that. So he's reemphasizing that when you go into the land, you're going to the land that's only going to produce if it rains. And the rain is completely out of your control. 
And everywhere you look, every billboard, every commercial, every advertisement, everything that everybody else is doing, everything that every celebrity is marketing is saying, look to something else in order to get your crops and your healthy children. And you're going to be tempted to buy into the advertisement. You're going to see idols on every single hill on the land. And all those idols are going to be fertility goddesses and storm gods. And you're going to be very tempted to see all this imagery, logos, advertisement, and think, I've never seen God, and He doesn't appear to me as an image, and I can't grasp Him, I can't see Him, Maybe I should go to what I can see. Because God knows that we are concrete, tangible, visual creatures. Why? Because He created us to be that. And He knows that that visual, that concreteness of advertisement is going to be so overwhelming compared to a distant memory of a God who appeared to you as fire and never ever has appeared to you since then and has no image and no representation you might start going towards what you can see and what you can feel and what you can touch as the source of your provision. And that's what he's warning him against. Remember, the advertisement is empty. The images are false. And ultimately, they leave you wanting. Even though you can't see me, and I have given you no image, I always honor my promises. I am always satisfied and I always provide. And that's the temptation that we even live in in the land now. Because it's very hard when you have a book. Now, you guys know me by now. I think this book is incredibly amazing and exciting. And I enjoy reading this and teaching it. But it's still very hard to take one book with a bunch of words and compete against the living color in this and all the lights and the brightness of advertisement. And it's hard to keep trusting God when you haven't seen Him and you haven't heard Him and the way that we physically hear and see everything else in this culture. I don't mean we never hear or see Him, just in that way. And the reality is what He's saying is that will not provide for you. That will not provide for you. And so right now, God has been providing for you because He's the only thing there and nothing else is there. But now the land is going to freely give and there's all these other options. Remember that there is no other God that has loved you like I have. There is no other God that has delivered me like I have. Trump, Hillary, your bank account, your lawyer, your doctor, your health, your vitamins, your money, your entertainment. Has it really satisfied you and loved you and saved you in the way that Christ dying on the cross has and the way that the Holy Spirit dwelling in you has? Remember, there is nothing like those two things. There's nothing like those two things. When you're watching that commercial and thinking, I need a bigger house. I need to remodel my basement. I need, I need. Now, there's nothing wrong with that. I'm not going to make you feel bad because you're like fixing your house up. But you know what I mean. There's a difference between making your house more comfortable and feeling that you have to have that in order to be satisfied. And that tension, only God can tell you where you're right and wrong in that desire. I can't. I can warn you of the danger, but I have no right to tell you you have violated that. Only the Holy Spirit can.
So this is the first command. Second command, verse 8. You must not make for yourself an image of anything in heaven above or on earth below or in the waters beneath. You must not worship or serve them, for I am Yahweh your God. I am a jealous God. I punish the sons and the grandsons and the great sons for the sin of the fathers who reject me. But I show covenant faithfulness for thousands who choose me and keep my commandments. So the next commandment is you shall not make any other images, which we've already kind of talked about that in the previous paragraph. First, this warned of the danger of conforming to the worship of Yahweh to the images of the foreign surrounding the culture. So this one is focusing mostly on don't take the images of everything around you and apply it to your worship of Yahweh. Don't think, wow, yeah, I'm not going to worship those gods, but the way that they worship those gods is very entertaining. The logo they designed for that god is very amazing. I'm just going to take it and kind of transfer it to Yahweh. And I'll worship him and the way that the pagans worship their gods, but it's okay because I'm really worshiping Yahweh. So, hey, let's bring a bunch of t-shirts and Jesus bobbleheads and all this kind of stuff into our church and start marketing and start turning the church into a giant bookstore to make a lot of money off of it. Let's think of every kind of way that we can get people into the church and just kind of copy the world and their advertisement and their logos and their music and all that kind of stuff. And we'll even like sell tons of stuff in church because we've got to pay the bills after all. And we'll charge you like 70-something dollars for a Bible, even though the Mormons and Satanists are giving their Bibles out for free. And we'll bring them all into the church and we'll look exactly like everybody else. The reality is we just start copying it. And I really bothers me when, do you know that like, Back in the time of the Reformation with Luther and John Calvin and all that kind of stuff, and yes, it's Luther, Martin Luther, um, um, it's German. And so the reality is back then, did you know that they were writing songs? Like in Mighty Fortresses He and all that kind of stuff. And you know that those songs were so powerful and so creative that the bars and the taverns when they wrote their songs, they copied the music of the Christians, but changed the lyrics to fit there. The world was literally copying the Christian community because the Reformation was an explosion of creativity and art. You go back and look at the paintings and the art and the music of the Reformation, and it was the most popular thing in Europe at that time. And the world was copying the Reformers' art and stuff. To me, it's also you see an explosion of skill. If you, you go through art history, and a good person to take you through art history in a Christian mindset is a man by the name of Francis Schaeffer. He has a video series called In How Shall We Live? It could be a little dry and boring because it was done in the 70s, but it is so amazing. He takes you through art and culture and shows you how art and culture reflects the philosophy and the theology of the people during that day. And it's amazing when you get to the Reformation, the art actually gets better, the music gets better, it gets multidimensional because the people are leading the culture at that time as the Christians. And then when the Christians kind of die out in popularity, the art kind of diminishes as well. It's pretty amazing. Now today, you hear people saying, oh, you want a song like Metallica or you want a song like Katy Perry? Here's a Christian group that's copied that sound and they're so that Christians can have the same sound without those bad lyrics. We're not leading the world in creativity and art and imagination and building like we used to. 
And the problem is we're too busy copying the world so that we look just as cool to our kids rather than being the people who allow the image of God. I mean, because you know why they're all able to be incredibly talented? Because they're in the image of God, which means we can be just as talented and creative as two. Now, are there incredibly talented and creative people in the church? Yes. But does the church give much room to art? Not really. We need to be the leaders in science, the leaders in art, the leaders in politics, the leaders in psychology, the leaders in all this kind of stuff. So the world looks at us and copies us, and not we copy them. And that's what God is saying. Don't look at the world and adopt what they're doing and just apply it to Yahweh and think it's okay. Now, sometimes it's okay, but that's where it requires much prayer, great wisdom, and the church discussing things together. But most of the time, we just emotionally jump on the bandwagon because we're afraid we're going to lose the next generation to something entertaining. We don't put a lot of thought. We just copy. And then we think later, oh, crap, that probably wasn't a good idea. And so this is what God is saying. Don't be tempted to go into the culture and say, okay, God, we won't worship their gods to get our crops. But what they do is really cool. So we'll just take the coolness and apply it to you. As if somehow God needs help. When you go in that land, don't fall in that temptation. Second reason why he command no images was that images are based in creation would confine the greatness and the transcendence of Yahweh. I already mentioned this. The minute you take this thing and apply it to Yahweh and say it's through this medium or this channel that I'm going to worship Yahweh, you've automatically limited Yahweh's transcendence and his abundance to just that thing. Any image that you choose for Yahweh is automatically putting him in a container which means you've already reduced them to a certain form of that container, which means he can never be more than that form or that container in your mind. He is more than that, and you can never box God in, but you can limit him and box him in in the way that you perceive him, and God doesn't want you to do that. Not because it's somehow going to affect him, and he's going to be like, oh my gosh, I'm dying, I'm limited, but because you're going to miss out on the abundance and the greatness of who he is. And he loves you too much for that to happen to you. This is his love language. Do you want your spouse or your children to go to other options rather than you and marriage and family? No. Do you want your children and your spouse to start saying that you're this and this and only and ignoring all these other things of you? No, that's not love. Do you want them to take these things and say, you know what, I think you should talk like that person and dress. I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna cheat on you but I really think that you should start dressing and talking like this woman over here because I think our marriage would be better if you looked more like her. Don't worry, I'm not being unfaithful. You should just look more like her. We would say that's really jacked up in all those cases. Yet when it comes to Yahweh, but God, what's the big deal? If a human wouldn't like that, then the unlimited God of the universe is definitely not going to tolerate it. And it mostly hurts you. It mostly hurts you. Just like if you go to your spouse and tell them that, that's going to hurt them, but it's also going to hurt you in your relationship with them. And this is all God is saying. You've got to think of the Ten Commandments less as do, 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 don't, 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 and more like this is my love language. This is my love language. Anything that detracts from the essential nature of who Yahweh is and the essential relationship of the covenant 
the commitment of love leads to the jealousy of Yahweh. And such false forms of worship had consequences for future generations. Anything that limits the essence of Yahweh in your mind and limits the essence of the relationship and the covenant is idolatry. You can justify it all that you want and repackage it all you want, but if God and his relationship becomes less to you because of what you're doing, you violated the law. Just like if I do something with my wife that reduces who she is and limits my relationship with her, I have violated the marriage covenant. I have violated our relationship. As innocent as it might be, or as justifiable as it might be. Now, he does say, I'm going to punish you to the third generation if you do this. But he also says, if you obey me and you do not have these false images, I will bless you to the umpteen generation. Now, notice, too, we get hung up on, like, wow, he's going to punish the children and the grandchildren. But remember, in contrast to that, the blessings go far greater than the consequences. And remember, the consequences is mostly not that God is punishing your grandchildren because you're an image worshiper, but because you're going to carry those consequences on. One, because if that's the way you live, you're probably going to pass it on to your children. And two... We all know that no matter what you agree, whether you agree with the President of the United States or not, the decisions he's making is affecting you whether you like it or not. This is what it means to live in a community. You can say all you want, but I don't agree with that decision, President. That should never touch me, the consequences. But the universe doesn't work that way. The universe doesn't work that way. And we all know what it's like to grow up in a family where people have reaped the consequences of bad decisions that the parents have made, even though they weren't like that, or they reap the blessings of parents, even though they didn't deserve the blessings. And this is what God is talking about.